Okay, so I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 6. If you have a Bible and the words are on the screen, we're going to read from verse 30 today down to verse 44. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would, all, that would take almost a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000, which probably means you can double that number to get the actual figure, the amount of people that were there. Okay, um, has anybody heard this story before? This, <laughs> I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? You, this, it's got to be like one of the most taught, preached, learned uh, texts ever. The feeding of the 5,000. I mean, can we just take a minute and just think back if you've had any experience with church or Sunday school, growing up, whatever, you have heard this before, right? You know the story, you've, done, you've had the little flannel graphs in Sunday school, you remember those? Jesus feeding the 5,000. You've seen the oil paintings of this stuff, you've colored in pictures of it in Sunday school, you've heard a thousand sermons on it, and when you came in this morning, you all let out a collective groan because you saw that this is what we're talking about today and you thought, you know, what, tell me no. You're not going to do this again. Haven't we heard it all on this passage? And so I can only ask you to spare a thought for me in this scenario, the poor preacher, because I've got to preach it. You know, and, and honestly, this is like an insight into the world of preaching. I sit there with this kind of passage and I think, what is there left to say about this? You know, when it's been, you've heard a million sermons on it, it's just, it's so hard with these texts to keep them fresh. You know, it's like John 3.16. You get numb. You, it's so hard to climb inside it and really get a fresh glimpse of it because it's all just so fairy tale, Bible story, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. You've already switched off, haven't you? I'm losing you already. See? See what's happening here? It's a battle today. It's a battle. And so, but I, I can you know, tell you that as I, as I have studied it and have looked at it afresh, I think there is a lot more going on than what you might see on the surface. But I know that some of you came expecting the, 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 the classic message on this passage. And so I've, I've got that one. This is Sermon A, all right, if you want that today. 
And I've just tried to summarize it for you here. There's like a cheesy cliche sermon that usually gets trotted out on this passage, and it goes, the basic moral lesson is this. However small your loaves and fishes, which usually mean like your abilities, your talents, your time, da-da-da-da-da, Jesus will take these to Jesus, and he will multiply them for his use. Isn't that cute? Yeah. <laughs> you bring your loaves and fishes, and Jesus will multiply them. Da-da-da. Now, does anyone, I, I wrote that one down. Does anyone want that sermon? <laughs> I've got it right here. It's yours for the taking. All right. Maybe the second service. I'll put that away. I think there's actually more to it than that, and uh, you, don't want to be, you don't want to try and be clever and novel with this, because that's the temptation too, and I'll be honest with you about that. It's, you, know, you want to try and be all creative and so on. But uh, certainly, as you start to dig, and you start to ask, well, what is Mark doing with this story, and why is it here, and why did Jesus do this, and, and, and what was behind it all, I think there's layers of richness that sometimes we just pass right over, because we want to get to a cute little moral lesson, and a little takeaway truth. And that's kind of what we reduce the story to, which I think just bottoms it right out. I think there's a lot more going on. So to start with, I want to take you back to a story much, 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 much earlier than this one, way back in the book of Exodus. Flick back there. If you have a, a Bible, we'll have the words on the screen. Exodus chapter 16. And just start to lay a backdrop to the story that's going on. Exodus is the book in the Bible, second book in the Bible, and it's the story of God delivering the Israelites, the people of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt, bringing them through the Red Sea and the wilderness in Sinai, and eventually settling them in their own land, the land of Canaan, which is roughly equivalent to the modern Israeli state. It's that whole journey we call the Exodus. Now, this is a story, this is a narrative that happened very soon after Israel came through the Red Sea, they got to the other side. This dramatic miracle had taken place. God had parted the waters, had delivered them and saved them. But now they found themselves in this crusty, dry, arid desert and began to wonder if this whole thing was all it was cracked up to be. Look at verse 2 of chapter 16 in Exodus. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt... There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out to this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So they start to grumble against Moses and Aaron. Jump down to verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? That's a good question. For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Each one had gathered just as much as they needed. So here is this incredible miracle in the desert where God provides miraculously and directly food for his people. This manna in the wilderness, the stuff that sustains them. And he keeps doing this every single day except the Sabbath day for 40 years and sustains them through the whole Sinai period until they're able to settle in their own land. Now, when you hear that story, can you start to hear what might be going on in the, in the story of the feeding of the 5,000? Can you start to hear what Mark might be saying 
by giving us this picture of what Jesus has done. Can you start to see what Jesus himself might be doing? Here is the Lord raining down manna from heaven in the wilderness, and then here is Jesus feeding 5,000 people, more like 10,000 individuals, with this bread that he's multiplied and giving it to the masses. What's happening is it's the exodus all over again. The manna in the wilderness is now becoming the bread that Jesus is multiplying. Now, if you think that's a bit of a stretch, the links in this story actually get stronger and stronger in Mark chapter 6. For example, in verse 34, you see that Jesus has compassion on these people, these crowds of people, and he sees them as being lost. He sees them, it's described, he sees them as being like sheep without a shepherd. That's a direct allusion to Numbers 27. You can go back there and have a look. Numbers 27, 15 to 17, where Moses says to God, Lord, you need to raise up a leader after me who's going to come and lead your people when I die because otherwise your people are going to be like sheep without a shepherd. That's what Moses says to God. You need to replace me. There needs to be a successor so these people aren't lost and like a sheep without a shepherd. What, what do you think is happening over here with Jesus? This is the one. This man is the greater than Moses figure who's now come to lead his people so that they won't be like a sheep without a shepherd. He's the one Moses looked towards. In the immediate sense, it was Joshua, Moses' successor. But even further ahead now, Jesus has come as the great new leader and he's going to take his people on a new exodus. And then there are other more minor allusions here. The fact that Jesus organizes the people into fifties and hundreds, exactly the same thing Moses did in the wilderness when Jethro came along, starts organizing the people, fifties and hundreds. There's a, a system, there's order, there's a deliberate purpose. And then afterwards you notice how many baskets were left over full of food? Twelve. And where have we seen that number before? The tribes of Israel, twelve tribes of Israel. It just goes on and on and on. And the cumulative effect of all of these links is, is what is being said behind the story. Jesus is the one who has now come as Moses' true successor. He's the one who has now come, the greater leader than Moses, the one who is going to be the true leader over God's people. And Jesus is now going to bring people on a new exodus. He's going to bring people on this new exodus, which is going to be greater and better and bigger and more profound than the last exodus. It's going to be a greater deliverance. It's going to be a greater redemption. It's going to be a greater freedom from slavery than Moses could ever bring people out of. Jesus is the one who's going to bring people through the new exodus. And he's enacting the story in his own ministry through enacting the story of the, of the manor in the wilderness by feeding 5,000 with these loaves and fishes. And Jesus just keeps doing this through the, the, the narrative of Mark. He's already reenacted the passing through the Red Sea at his baptism. You remember that? Where Jesus is baptized in Mark chapter 1, and you just see these parallels with the Israelites crossing through the Red Sea. Now Jesus is going through the waters. What's happening? It's the new exodus. It's the new deliverance. Now Jesus is feeding 5,000 people in, in, the, in the wilderness, which, by the way, is another link, the wilderness setting, the solitary place where this story is, is set, exactly the same type of setting that the Israelites, um, you know, the, the desert setting there. Jesus is now coming, and he's enacting the story, the miracle of the feeding in the wilderness. So this story, in the first instance, points backwards. It points backwards to the Exodus event. The great saving act of deliverance in the Old Testament. 
And what's happening in the story is Jesus is now bringing about a greater deliverance. He's bringing about a new freedom. He's bringing about a new exodus. He's taking his people through a new journey, which is greater and more profound than the one they've been on before. But the story also points forward. Because just as Jesus is reenacting this exodus event, that exodus climaxes in his death and his resurrection. That really is where the exodus truly happened. And in the sense of, of biblical theology, the cross and the empty tomb are in the New Testament what the exodus event is in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? That those two events are connected in so many ways. And it's very helpful to think of them in parallel. That what God is doing in the Exodus is now happening in Jesus, but in a greater way, in a bigger sense, in a more profound way. And through his dying and rising, he really takes people from, from, a, from a position of slavery, not just to a government, but to sin. And he gives them true freedom. Freedom from sin. Freedom for eternal life. Freedom of forgiveness. And what he's doing, if you look at it in the sense of this story, on the cross, Jesus is providing true food for his people. That's why he calls himself the bread of life, because on the cross, he's really satisfying not just a, a physical need, but the true inner spiritual need of the human heart, that food of forgiveness, the bread of life, the bread of redemption. That's the food that Jesus really came to bring. And that's what this story points towards. In some way, you get with the feeding of the 5,000 a glimpse of this true feeding that's going to take place through the dying and the rising of Christ when he will finally give his people the bread of life that they've all been looking for and will bring them on this great exodus out of slavery to sin into a new land, into a place of hope and security and freedom. And that true bread that Jesus offers is the invitation that's available to every individual person. That's the climax of the story. That's the invitation that Jesus extends to come and receive that bread of life, to come and experience that forgiveness. And if you haven't done that yet, that invitation is open to you. It's, it's sitting out there. It is always available. That's what you see demonstrated. That's what you're going to see demonstrated in a few minutes when Antonia is baptized, is that Exodus journey reenacted as she goes through the waters demonstrating that she's been freed from sin, and she's been raised to new life in Christ. That's what that means. And in some sense, that is a retelling of the story of the feeding of the 5,000, as she receives that true bread, that true manna in the wilderness, the bread of life. So the story points back to the first exodus, and as well as that, it points forward to the cross and to the resurrection, but it does something else. It also points even further forward to the day when Jesus is going to make all things new. And this, I would argue, is the primary purpose of this miracle. Because when Jesus was raised from the dead, he didn't just raise to give you an individual new life. That's usually how we interpret the resurrection, that Jesus just came, he's giving you a personal freedom, this little gift placed in your heart. But in fact, what he did is begun an entirely new creation. An entirely new world, an entirely new cosmos broke in on that Easter Sunday. That new creation came into the present, and, and the kingdom started to take shape on earth. And it continues to take shape now, wherever the Spirit of God is at work in the lives of people and societies and cultures and groups, until one day Jesus is going to return and finally usher in the kingdom 
in its full and final and complete state. Then the new creation that begun when Jesus was raised from the dead will be here in its totality. Then what, Je what God did for Jesus on Easter Sunday, he will do for the whole world. That's what we look forward to. And we will be raised just as Jesus was raised from the dead. That was a microcosm of the future that, that, that awaits us. And it's interesting that when you read the biblical passages that talk about what this new future will be like, the future that God has uh, planned for us, one of the dominant images is food, which those of us who love to eat are pretty happy about, that there's a whole lot of food that seems to be happening in this new heaven on earth. And you have this picture in Revelation of a great, it's, it's, a, it's a wedding banquet there that happens. And there's this table spread out, and it's the wedding supper of Christ and the church. It's like a big marriage uh, ceremony, marriage reception rather. And in Isaiah, you look at these pictures, and it's a huge spread that the Messiah is going to come and prepare in the desert again uh, before his enemies, and this great spread of food, and there will be plenty. It talks about a new harvest, and there'll be grain, and there'll be uh, food for all, and new wine, and all of these types of things. You get the picture that there's going to be a lot of food, and this is a picture of abundance, and plenty, and peace, and prosperity. And I don't think it's an accident that Jesus performed this particular miracle, which involved feeding a whole lot of people. I don't think he did it just because in the moment he felt compassion on a whole lot of hungry people. That's often what we think Jesus' miracles are about. You know, he saw these people, he felt compassion on them, he did a miracle. Now that's part of it, but there's much, much more going on here. What you see in this story when Jesus fed 5,000 people is a little foretaste of the future that will one day be here. It's a little microcosm of the new creation when there will be plenty for all, when there will be great bounty and there will be satisfaction from all people and there will be no longer the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor, but all will be equal and all will be fed and all will be full and all will be satisfied with the likeness of seeing Christ and being in His presence. That's the future and you see it here in miniature form. When I came across this, and it might not be blowing your minds this morning, but it really did just change my thinking. When I, when I came across this, this way of seeing the miracles, back when I was studying at Bible College of New Zealand, it really did just affect how I saw every single miracle that Jesus performed. Because I used to think that he did this stuff, and he healed people, and he calmed storms, and he fed 5,000 because he wanted to prove that he was God. That's often how we think about it, or that he just had compassion on people in the moment. And so he saw this poor... Uh, lame man, and so he reached out, and, and just the, the moment, you know, Jesus healed him. Now, there's a grain of truth in that, but that's not really what the gospel writers focus on. What you see in the miracles are a limited, tantalizing foretaste of the glorious future that God is storing up for us. What you see in the miracles are these little pictures of the new heaven on earth. So take any miracle story. Th think about miracles that, that you know of. When Jesus calmed the storm, What's happening there? He's taking authority over nature. And he's giving us a little deliciously tantalizing glimpse of that final day when he will finally take direct rule over all things, the entire creation, the entire cosmos, and he will be all in all. That's what that miracle's pointing towards. They're signposts pointing towards the new creation. Pointing into a mist, yes, but pointing towards that day when Jesus will be all in all. 
Well, what about the miracles of healing that he performs? One we're going to look at in a couple of weeks where he heals a man with a withered hand. It's not just about Jesus demonstrating his divinity and, and giving evidence that he's God. It is about him pointing towards that day when there will be full healing and final restoration and we'll receive new resurrection bodies. Same thing that happens when Jesus raises people from the dead. He's not just doing a favor for his mate Lazarus, who's, who's dead and now been made alive again. Jesus is again, it's a signpost. This is what one day God's going to do for every single person. What Jesus is doing here for Lazarus. It's a signpost to the future. What about the miracle we looked at last week of Jesus healing the guy with a legion of demons? Not just because he happened to get shipwrecked on that side of the Lake of Galilee and it just happened. There's no, these aren't coincidences. Jesus is giving us a signpost to that day when he will take authority over all the demons of hell and they will surrender and submit to him as Lord and he will finally be all in all. Everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth brought under the lordship, under the feet as it's described, of Jesus. Everything except the God, the Father himself. And then the Son surrenders all things to the Father. And so God is finally all in all. See that? I know you just sort of glazed eyes here or whatever. But the, you know this... This blew my mind when I heard about it because it does. What, what happens then is that if you really want to know what the future is going to be like, you don't just have to read Revelation 21 and 22. You don't just have to go to the cliche old passages that talk about the future. You can go to the miracles of Jesus and you see there in miniature form what's going to be the case one day. Not fairy tales, not cute little Sunday school stories, but real pictures of what God one day will do for all those who follow him in the present life. And so the whole picture becomes deeper. And that, I would suggest to you, is the primary purpose, not only of this miracle, but of all the miracles, to be signposts to the new creation and to lead us towards what God's one day going to do. So, how then do, do we find ourselves in the middle of all that? In a way, it's kind of easier if you just stick with the, the cliche version of the story. You know, if we all just go home with a cute little well, but what about bringing my loaves and fishes to Jesus and he's going to multiply, you know, what happened to that? You know, well, that would be easy, but I think it doesn't do justice to what's really going on here. If this story points backwards to the Exodus and forward to the cross and the empty tomb and further forward again to the new creation, where do we fit in the middle of all that? Listen again to Jesus' words to his own disciples. When they come to him and they say, that, look at all these people here, they're hungry, You've got to send them away to get some food, otherwise they're going to starve. What does Jesus say to them in verse 37? But he answered, you give them something to eat. Which on the surface of it can sound quite harsh, like he's saying, well, you, I don't know, you sort it out. Your problem. Thousands of people, I don't know. I'm the son of God. I can do what I like. But he's not really saying that. What he is doing is inviting them to come and be a part of what he's about to do. And as you read forward in this miracle, they really are quite intrinsic to what goes on. It's true that Jesus is, it's, it's clearly his power. He's doing the miracle, or at least the Spirit of God is, is working through him to produce this incredible miracle. But the disciples are the ones who bring the loaves and the fishes, and they are the stewards of the food, you notice. They're the ones who hand it out, who go around and serve these people and then have 12 baskets left over. They're really woven right into the middle of the whole thing, and they're Jesus' ushers of this whole thing that's happening. And I'd suggest that if we want to try and figure out where we fit into this story and the whole sweep of what God's doing, we need to somehow try and hear these words being spoken to us. We need to somehow hear Jesus saying to us, you give them something to eat. Not as 
a literal command to go and give a loaf of bread to a hungry person, although that would certainly be included. And not just as a, as a sort of moral instruction, go and live a good life, go and do good deeds, go and do good works, but as an invitation to participate with him in bringing that new creation to bear in the present. To do, in a sense, what the disciples did in this miracle and be the stewards of the food that Jesus keeps providing for his people today. To be the ushers of the new creation in the present. Because you have to ask yourself, if this is a little picture of the new creation breaking in, if, if what we have here really is the kingdom of God taking shape on planet earth, if this is a partial answer to the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, if that's what's happening here, and if it's still happening today, then how is the kingdom going to come? How is the new creation going to break in? How is the reign of God going to penetrate and the light of the kingdom shine in the darkness of this present world? Isn't it going to be through the church? Isn't it going to be through the body of Christ, through those who name the name of Jesus and confess Him as Lord? Isn't it when the church, energized by the Spirit, animated by the Spirit of God, takes seriously Jesus' command to be the bearers of the kingdom of the new creation in this present world, and we go forward and somehow carry on what Jesus was doing on this day, bringing new creation to bear even in the midst of the old world, even in the midst of the darkness, these rays of kingdom light, letting them begin to shine. We become the agents of that new creation. We become the agents of the kingdom. We become the hands and the feet of Jesus and moving this story forward into the present. Now, how's that going to happen practically? Well, I think, to be honest, it's difficult to go past the obvious example. If you've got here a story about Jesus feeding hungry people, wouldn't it be a natural extension of that to suggest that the church today could be addressing the needy people, firstly within its own community? That if we are serious about following this Jesus who fed 5,000 hungry people in the wilderness, how can we turn a blind eye from those today who are hungry and needy and suffering and broken? Wouldn't that be an example by us ministering to such people of embodying that spirit that you see demonstrated in this narrative? And doesn't it start here? You know, even in this room right now, there are people who are really feeling the squeeze economically at the moment. There really, really are. And it's easy to gloss that because we tend to be, you know, what, comfortable, middle-class, suburban church. And it, it seems, look around, it seems like everybody's got it together. But I can assure you that is not the case. And there are people right now, even among us here, that, that are just feeling the squeeze, that are just crunched financially, that are just getting beaten up by gas prices and grocery prices, investors who are losing money, people for whom business is just drying up, and, they, and people who can't find work, who are struggling to make ends meet. It's happening right here. And we're very quick to sort of pass over that and, and look at the broader issues. But doesn't it start in the body of Christ? And what would the response be of a church that took seriously what Jesus did in feeding 10,000 people, really it was? in terms of responding to those in our own midst who are suffering? Wouldn't it mean actually taking the initiative to help these people? Wouldn't it mean actually trying to rally around them, trying to look after them, trying to do whatever we can practically to reach out to such people who are struggling? Now, you may not know who they are, but it begins by asking God to begin making you aware of needs that you might be able to meet, and at least having enough 
sensitivity to the Spirit of God in your own heart to say, God, show me if there is someone here, even in this room today, who needs some encouragement, who I could get alongside, who I could somehow do something for. And it may not be you giving cold, hard cash to them. It may simply be through an encouraging word. There are people who are really quite downtrodden at the moment who just need your encouragement, who just need to be lifted up a little bit because they don't have a whole lot of hope right now. And they're not quite sure how it's going to get better. And they're not quite sure where the next mortgage payment's going to come from. And there are people that could really just do with an encouraging word from you. It's not just my responsibility or the staffs or the elders or the institutional church, however you define that. It's the body of Christ together, taking seriously the Lordship of Jesus. The one who fed 5,000 is here today saying, I need you to go and feed my people. You be the one to minister to them. You be the one to go. You give them something to eat. Don't look for the person next to you to do it. Don't look to your life group leader to do it. Don't look to the staff to do it. You take some initiative. Try and find someone who can help. Try and get a referral for them. Try and provide that economic advice through some other means. Try and organize a few people that can somehow reach out over here. When those sort of things start taking shape and clusters of people start rising up to meet this need and that need and respond to this one and that one over here, then we become like the church in the book of Acts about whom it was said in chapter 4, there was no needy person among them. And you have to ask yourself, could that happen here? Could that be said of a community of faith like this one? That there was no needy person among them. Because we follow one who said to us, you give them something to eat. You be my hands and my feet. And even more broadly than this gathering here, I'd suggest that there is a role in our, in our society and in our culture. You know, when we're, we're, we're in a situation where consumer debt is getting higher and higher, where people are really getting crunched financially all over the place, increasing numbers of beneficiaries who are just struggling to make it work week in, week out. And sometimes there's a temptation within the church to say, sorry, that's not our brief. Sorry, we don't, we don't do that. We're about the internal stuff. We're about looking after one another. And I agree it starts here, but I don't think it ends here. I find it hard to believe that a community of faith that confesses as Lord a Jesus that fed 5,000 people could just turn a blind eye to suffering and poverty in our country or in our world. It just doesn't seem to me to equate. And I think there is a role for the church to step out. I don't think it's only our responsibility, but I think we're part of the solution. I think it means Christians should be well represented in humanitarian organizations and coalitions of all types that do address those issues of poverty, that do seek to lift up the lowly and minister to those who Jesus called the least of these in our society, those who are marginalized, those who are neglected, those who are on the underside of power, those who are downtrodden and on the margins. These are people that we need to have a little bit of awareness for in our snug middle-class existence. It's so easy to let that go. But as we let the light of the gospel shine in our own hearts, the natural extension is that we're drawn with compassion to those who are like sheep without a shepherd in many different ways, in many different senses. And we take seriously Jesus' words. You go and give them something to eat. Not in a legalistic way, not to be good moral Christians, but because we're so grateful to the one who has fed us and nourished us and given us eternal life that it's all we can do. And it's all we want to do. And even more broadly than that, to be aware of those around the world who are suffering, the issue of global poverty, the tremendous suffering that is taking place, and the tremendous needs that there are. And again, it's very easy to feel helpless. It's very easy to feel like we're just a drop in the bucket. But it starts by awareness. 
It starts by recognizing that we do have a role, and even just to familiarize yourself with some of the issues and some of the organizations like Make Poverty History that are trying to address these types of issues, that are trying to practically take seriously the call to go and to be light in the darkness and to give bread to the hungry and feed the naked and uplift the brokenhearted. These are the types of things where Christians should have an active role. Wilberforce did it with slavery. Who's going to do it with poverty? These are the questions that should hang on our minds. And as we do these things, we start to put into action Jesus' words, you go, and you give them something to eat. And we could think of a million other ways in which this could happen. We're focused on poverty here, but the kingdom comes in so many ways. The light shines in so many situations through just lifting people out of hopelessness and fear and intimidation. And of course, through sharing with them the good news about Jesus. This is the greatest gift, the greatest bread that we can ever give to people is sharing with them the incredible hope that Jesus offers and the transformation that's possible for every single person because of his work on the cross. So we need to try and rescue this story, I think, from becoming just another Sunday school fable because that's the way it's going. And we've got to be careful that we don't just relegate this to a nice Bible story with a cute moral lesson that you bring your loaves and fishes and Jesus will multiply them for his use. Of course, that's, that's all true and we could preach that a thousand times. But this is more than that. This is a profound invitation to be part of the kingdom taking shape on planet Earth. It's, it's hearing Jesus say, you go and give them something to eat. Not as so much of a, of, a, of a legal instruction, but as an invitation to participate in what he's doing on planet Earth right now, as we anticipate in the present that incredible future that is one day coming, and we try in some small way to bring that future into the present and to embody what one day will be the case. Shall we pray together?